thank you for joining us for this podcast from Abundant Life. We pray that you will be blessed and encouraged by this word. Now, here's Pastor Scott. We do it all the time, and I know it's difficult to do. I want you to believe that God is real and that you're here because he wants you here. I want you to believe that God is real, he's still alive, and that he is able to speak to you today individually. Not just church. Too many people get caught up in coming to church. You need to have an experience with God today. You need to let God say something to you that will help you. Here's the problem why so many people miss out on this. We want God to help other people because they need the help, right? We're pretty good. We're straight. You ask the average person. Well, let me back up because I know way more about men than than I know about women because I've been a man for a long time. If you ask the average man in this country, you all right? You need something? Can I, can, can I do something for you? Uh, how you doing? I'm straight. I got it. It's all good. We need help. We just won't admit it. But here's what I know. That any time you truly, from your heart, sincerely seek the Lord, Jesus made a promise. He said, if you'll seek him, that he will be found of you. See, we all heard about the game, probably played the game, hide and seek. And some people are really good at hiding. They don't call it hide and seek anymore because kids got to try to act like, you know, they're doing other things than what their parents did. What do they call it now? Manhunt. Same game. Manhunt. We we have the kids play manhunt. The youth play manhunt on the church. My boys come home. And they're like, Dad, they never were going to find me if we'd have played for five more days. And then they tell me the wild places that they climbed up on and hid under and could have died in the process. Listen, some people play hide and seek too extreme. You're not going to find them. You know, that's like, you know, if you really want to mess your kids up, play hide and seek. Tell them to go to their room, count for ten, get in the car and go to the store. You know what I'm saying? He, where is he? We've looked everywhere. Bet you didn't look at the kangaroo, did you? God is not getting in his car and driving to the kangaroo while you're searching for him. He's not playing it hard to find. He said, all you have to do is look for me and you'll find me. And I want you to look for the Lord today. I want you to believe that God loves you and he has something to say to you today because church for some people is old hat church for some people is cool I love coming to church I always love coming to church before I was preaching I loved coming to church the opportunity to be around Christians opportunity to sing opportunity to worship use my gifts my talents for the Lord to learn more about God some people can't stand church but the point is if all you're doing is showing up so you can say I went to church you're missing out on the big picture of what God has for you now, some of y'all have been coming to church for so long that you forgot what it's like to show up and actually have an encounter with God because you just settled into your routine and decided, hey, church is church. I know what's going to happen. We're going to show up. It's going to sing. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then we're going to go home or eat some lunch together. Listen, I want you to take this, these next few minutes and look for God and allow God to say something in your life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, I want to read four verses of Scripture for you, then I'm going to pray in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, the Apostle Paul is speaking to this man he calls his son. 
Now, this isn't his biological son. It's his spiritual son. It's somebody that looked to him for fatherly advice, for wisdom as a spiritual mentor. And in verse 12, the Bible says, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 15 says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I want to preach to you this morning from a, from a familiar topic for our church this time of year, from a sermon titled, I Haven't Always Been Like This. I hope somebody can say me either. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us, God. Thank you for your spirit. I pray today by your spirit, Lord, that you would anoint me to say what you would have me to say. God, I thank you for salvation, Lord. I thank you for your love for us, God. I thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your patience. God, I thank you that you never fail. And I pray today, Lord, as we look to your word, that you'd speak to us by your spirit, from your word, in Jesus' name, amen. I haven't always been like this. We're going to talk today about spiritual birthdays. We're going to talk today about the new birth. We're going to talk today about being born again. But before you click me out, before you start nodding and, and, and playing a chicken head bob game where, where you're trying to stay awake and, and falling off, I want you to, if you're born again, if you're saved, if you believe you're a Christian, I want you to really be able to feel this deep down at some point in your life that I haven't always been like this. Some of the most refreshing times in my life throughout the course of the week as I go through my life are times where I just laugh at me on the inside because something will happen, somebody will do something, Somebody will try to get a reaction out of me, and I'll pick the right way. I'll respond as a true Christian, and I'll just laugh at me, and I'll say to myself either out loud or in my mind, man, if I wouldn't have saved, that would have went a whole different way. You ever been there? That's when you know that you're saved for real. That's when you know that God has really changed you when you can honestly say that if that would have happened, at other points in my life, we'd have had a whole different outcome right then. Why? Because I haven't always been like this. I haven't always been in church on Sunday morning. I haven't always been carrying a Bible. I haven't always been talking about Jesus. I haven't always been the guy that, that you, you could trust to be close to you in your life. And here's the reality. The Bible says that those who have been forgiven much love God much. And here's what we take that to mean in modern 2016. That the ones that were really deep down in the gutter, the ones that were drugging and thugging, end up loving God more than anybody else because they understand that they've been forgiven for so much sin. Well, you can make that a, a cool message and you can pull on that. And many times those who serve the Lord most fervently in the church, in their daily walk with Christ, are ones who came out of some really bad beginnings and some really bad backgrounds but when the bible says that those that are forgiven much love god much that there's not a really a distinction between how much you've been forgiven for versus how much i've been forgiven for or versus how much the person next to you has been forgiven for it's more about an awareness 
those who realize how much they've been forgiven for love God more than the average person. See, you may or may not ever even consider how much you've been forgiven for. But whether you grew up in the church, lily white, never been incarcerated, or whether you've been down a difficult road and God reached way down in the gutter to get you and you realize that, listen, God reached in the gutter to get all of us. None of us were perfect. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I hope that you will be one of those people. You might not have a testimony. You see, they try to make the, the most dramatic testimonies they can for these preachers that travel around preaching, radio and TV preachers. And listen, a testimony is not, well, I used to be on top. I used to be drugging, had women and cars and money, and I was just bawling out, and then I got saved. That's not a testimony. That's, that, I mean, that can be your testimony, but that's, that's not a great testimony. See, people, I've had people say, I wish I had uh, an, an awesome, and what they mean by that is a drastic difference in lifestyle testimony. But let me tell you what the best testimony is and what every real father and what every real mother would desire, not only for their own life, but for their children and even for their grandchildren. How about this for a testimony? I got saved, and it's not my testimony, but, but I hope this would be the testimony for, for my children, for your children, uh, all the way from Charlotte in the back to everybody else in, in the middle. Listen, that you got saved at a really young age. You never drank. You never did drugs. The only person you ever had sex with was the person that you married. You held hands together as you took each other's last breath and went to heaven together. That's a real testimony. That's the saving power of God, the keeping power of God. I'd rather my children's testimony be, I got saved at a young age, served God my whole life, never got caught up in any foolishness. That's a way better testimony than pieces of my testimony that you're going to hear today. But it is what it I as is. And you need to understand that there is supposed to be a change in the life of a person who calls themselves a Christian. So I'm going to be talking a lot to Christians this morning as well as non-Christians. But if you claim salvation, which is to say that you've been born again, that you've had a new birth, that should say in and of itself that something about you changed. See, a lot of people look for what's the real proof that somebody is saved. It's not just that you come to church. It's not that you have some spiritual gift. It's not that you serve or you know scripture. It's that I used to be this way, but now I'm that way. The Bible says if you're in Christ, you become a new person and things change in your life. So change is the real hallmark of true salvation. And in the text that I read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says in verse 12, I thank the Lord Jesus Christ who enabled me, counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So Paul is looking back on his life, and he knows he was scandalous. He knows he was treacherous. He knows that he did dirt. He knows that he did not come up following Christ because there was no, there was no religion of Jesus Christ when he was coming up. And he, know, he, he knows that he had done things opposing Christ, but he said, God counted me faithful, and God put me in the ministry. I want you to know, if you call yourself a Christian today, we don't love him because we're smart. We don't choose him 
because we, we're intelligent. The Bible says, Jesus said, you, you, you love me because I first loved you. Jesus told his very disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I want you to know this, and I want you to let it humble you, and I want you to get it in your head that if you're a Christian at all, it's not because you were smarter than the people around you, and it's not because you made a great decision. If you're saved at all, it was because God, with his love and his grace and his mercy, tracked you down in your sin while you were doing crazy, and he overran you with his love and his mercy and his grace, and he called you unto himself. This is how you become a Christian. And Paul said, man, I'm just, I'm, I'm thankful God, God enabled me. He, 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 he considered me faithful. Now, that's a whole different message in and of itself, but it's God that places us in the ministry. I don't want you to believe that ministry only happens behind a pulpit. Ministry means meeting needs. Meeting needs. If you hold the door open for somebody with a thought of Christ in your mind, then you have met a need in a Christian way. That's why the Bible says if you give a glass of cold water to somebody in the name of Jesus, then you will receive a reward for that. There are needs that must be met. And if you are out there meeting needs, you're doing ministry. I mean, from as simple as holding a door to smiling at someone to showing kindness to someone, picking up a piece of trash on the ground to whatever, to, to preaching in the pulpit or going on missions trips. Ministry is not churchy ministry is about meeting needs and we have all been called into the ministry if you study the bible you'll understand that clearly but paul lists his testimony a little bit in verse 13 he says he was a blasphemer he was a persecutor he was injurious he said but i obtained mercy i hope there's a i was this but god i hope there was a i used to be this way but god changed me I got great news for you if that's not your story it's not too late for you if you haven't been fully changed here's the problem most people think that coming to church is going to give them the change they need to get them to heaven and that's not the reality you can sit in church every day I told you many times many people have said it way before me that sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you an automobile just doesn't work that way it's about having something happen on the end side of you it's about obtaining mercy from the Lord and having a lifestyle change he said that God's grace was incredible to him and he said in verse 15 that here's good news this is a faithful saying Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief now that was an incredible thing for the apostle Paul to say because the apostle Paul came from the right side of the tracks most people didn't come from the right side of the tracks, especially inside the church. That's why Christians should not be proud people. They should be humble people because God said that he didn't choose many mighty, many noble, many wise. The fact that you're saved and you call yourself a Christian, God said he took the lesser things, the more foolish things, the, the weaker things to call to himself so he could put his glory in them. You need to get it out of your mind. I heard so many people say for years, Oh, but Pastor Scott, what if God saved Michael Jackson? What, what if God could, could save this superstar or that superstar? One, most superstars are caught up in their own thing, and they, and they don't believe that they need God. But listen, if God saved some wealthy superstar entertainer and they did something great and big on a grand scale for God, people have been like, well, you know, they, they, they got it like that. They took their money and their ability, and they made something awesome. But what if God 
takes a broken person? What if God takes somebody from the wrong side of the tracks with little to no education, with little to no training, and he puts his spirit inside them, he puts his power and his glory inside them, and he does something that is noteworthy. God gets the credit for that, not the person. And that's the way the God we serve operates. So if you call yourself saved, there ought to be a certain humility that comes with that, that that says, oh, I'm one of those foolish, weaker, lesser than things that God chose. So if anything good happens in my life, I can't take credit for it. They'll have to know God did something. Paul was a little exceptional in that area because he was one of those mighty. He was one of those noble. He was one of those wise people. He came from the right family. He had the best schooling. He had the best background. He had the best family tree. His people were imported. They grew up on the right side of the track. And he could have easily been proud as his peers, but he realized and said in verse 15 on the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I wonder, and we're not going to do it, and there, there would be limited value in it, and that's why we're not going to do it. But if you had to rank yourself today, just in this crowd right here, if you had to rank yourself as biggest sinner in the room, as to, I'm better than all these people. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. Big, biggest sinner in the room or, ah, these people can't touch me because, you know, I'm next to Jesus. And these people, I'm saved, sanctified, and fire, holy goat, baptized. And these folk are just sinners. Paul had it going on like butter and eggs. He had money. He had education. He had the family tree to pull on. But he realized he was a big-time sinner. Listen, I wonder, and you don't know everybody in the room, but if you just had to list yourself, well, I'm probably in the top half of the good people in the room. Because, I mean, look at them. (laughs) They got to be worse than me, right? Or would you say, I'm probably in the bottom half, and if people in this room knew everything about me, they'd probably be running me through a metal detector. (laughs) Or at least a thought detector. Or, or uh, listen, Paul lived a very strict life, but he realized that he was still a sinner. I hope you know you're a sinner. It's incredible the number of people I talk to. See, for me, God has blessed me to win a lot of people to Christ, pray with a lot of I mean, I have prayed with total strangers in every type of scenario you can. Rest stops on the highway, Popeye's chicken, Shoney's, McDonald's, Burger, just anywhere you can imagine. I've had conversations in parking lots with total strangers resulting in us getting on our knees together and them asking God to come into their life and save them. I've seen a lot of people pray to receive Christ. It is not difficult for me to lead somebody to Christ. What is difficult to do is get somebody to admit that they need to be led to Christ. Because I just go out and ask people everywhere I go, are you saved? Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a good person. Well, I already know you're not a Christian then if that's your deal. You come back with, oh, yeah, my, my, my uncle was the chief mason who laid the cornerstone on the big church downtown. If that's your view of why you're a Christian, you're going to come up real short on Judgment Day because there's nothing in the Bible about what your grandfather or your uncle did as far as building churches. People, people say all the time, I ask them, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, well, I never killed anybody. That'd be like me saying, hey, yo, man, uh, can I get the time? Uh, green and brown. Green and brown what? That's my answer. 
I say, are you a Christian? I never killed anybody. You may as well look at me and say, purple elephants. That's not even part of the question. Are you a Christian? Well, I'm a good person. Not part of the question. Are you born again? Well, I'm not as bad as my brother. That's not the question. See, it's not hard to get somebody saved. It's like being a lifeguard. It's not hard for the lifeguard to dive into the pool and pull you out. But it's hard for him to find out which one needs to be saved. Once you know that you're drowning, you're desperate to call for the lifeguard. Once you know that you need help, you're desperate to call for help. But most people don't realize that they're lost. Most people don't realize that they have violated God's promise. And Paul realized that he was a sinner. In his day, he was a great man. God used him to write half the books in the New Testament. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, God inspired him to tell the truth and say, be followers of me because I'm following Jesus. He was following Jesus so closely that he knew if people in his community followed him that they would get to Jesus too. I wonder if you can say that. Could you tell people in your home, could you tell people in your community in this room, hey, hang out with me, do what I do all week long, you're going to get closer to Jesus. Follow me. Because I'm following Jesus. Listen, if you are going in a caravan, do you know why people meet at the church? Like if we were going somewhere to some special event and we said let's just all meet at the church to caravan over. People do that because everybody doesn't know the way. And if you're following somebody you trust, you don't need the directions. You just got to keep up with them. You just hope they don't go too fast on the interstate, and if they do, you have to keep up with them. Why? Because if you follow somebody who's going in the right direction, you'll get to where they're going. And Paul was following Christ in the right way, but he knew that before he met Christ that he was a sinner. I hope you know that about you. I hope you know that you have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Life can be difficult. Life can be awesome. Life can be weird. One day you can be having the best day of your life. And the very next day, it could be the worst day of your life. I haven't had that this week, but I did commemorate that this week. Because 35 years ago, um, on the 15th, what's the day? 17th? It's 35 years ago. Friday was my 35th spiritual birthday. It's been 35 years since I've been born again. I've been saved for 35 years, so I'm celebrating that. But as I was thinking about that and praying and thanking God for saving me, I flashed back to 10 years ago. 10 years ago on July 15th, 2006, I was celebrating my 25th spiritual birthday. My wife was in the hospital with cancer. She was at hospice in Jacksonville. And we were praying and thanking God for giving me 25 years of salvation. So that day was a highlight, 25 years. That's a lot of time in Christ. And the very next day, she died and went home to be with the Lord. So for me, July 15th is always an awesome day because it is the anniversary of the day that I became a Christian. But the very next day, July 16th, is a very difficult day in memoriam because it's the day that my wife passed. And so, you know, that's just how life goes and I want you to know this today that life is meant to go that way there's supposed to be ups and downs the downs make you thankful for the ups 
and, and, and the ups give you strength for the next down. Don't think, don't be sad because you're not always on top. Don't think that you're supposed to always be happy. Don't think that life is just supposed to be fine and dandy and all, always rock candy. It's not built to be that way. Jesus said in this lifetime you're going to have tribulation. And, and, and Paul had had his ups and Paul had had his downs. He said in verse 13 he was a blasphemer. In verse 15 he said he was the head sinner. He remembered what he used to be. And I'm going to ask you this morning, do you remember what you used to be? If you're like, well, I've always been a good person. You ain't found Jesus yet. Because when you meet God, the same thing's going to happen to you that happened to me and everybody in the Bible that ever met God. When you come to an awareness of who God is, you get a real close look at who you are. And that's why when people met God in the Old Testament and when people got a glimpse of who Jesus really was in the New Testament, they fell on the ground and said, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Depart from me because I'm not worthy to even be in your presence. He remembered what he used to be. Everywhere he went, he told people his testimony. Why? Because he never forgot who he was and he never got over what happened to him the day he got saved. He never forgot and he never got over. If you're truly saved in here today, but you're not excited about your relationship with Christ, maybe you believe that you're truly born again, but you're just not on fire for God like you used to be. Let me tell you, one of two things happened. Either you forgot what happened to you when God saved you, or you got over it. Because if you will live in an awareness where you never forget what he's done for you, and you never get over the fact that he saved you when he didn't have to, then you're going to keep your mind right, and you're going to be able to stay focused on God the way Paul was able to. He never forgot. And he never got over what happened to him on the Damascus Road. And Paul, for the rest of his life, went around telling his testimony. His testimony, the, the events in his life that led up to him getting saved. If I passed out paper and pen right now and I said, I want you to, in as short a form as possible, write your testimony down. What led up to you getting saved? When did that happen? And um, how did it happen? I wonder what you'd be able to write down. Some people would have to write down, well, I don't know when it happened. I've just always been a Christian. If I asked you how old you were and you said, well, I don't know how long I've been around. I've just been here forever. I would know you need medication and inpatient therapy. Nobody has been born and alive forever, and nobody has been born again forever. There has to be a date of your natural birth, and the Bible teaches that there is a date of your spiritual birth. Paul knew where he was when he got saved and he never got over it. He told his story to Festus, the governor, in Acts 22. And then in Acts 26, he tells his testimony to King Agrippa. Some of you have never read this passage of Scripture, but most people have heard about the Apostle Paul. Most people have heard about the Apostle Paul being saved on the road to Damascus. I want to read to you. It's a lengthy passage of Scripture. Look at it on the screen. Listen to it. Try to stay focused, and we'll get out of here. Acts 26.1 says this. Now, here's the backdrop. Paul's been arrested. They want to kill him. The only thing he's been arrested for is believing in Jesus and the resurrection. He's being tried by people who believe that, that Messiah would come and that he would raise people from the dead, but they didn't believe he'd come yet, and Paul is on trial, and he's telling his story. He's telling his testimony to leaders, and here he's telling his story to King Agrippa. And in verse 1, he says, or King Agrippa said to Paul, You may speak. In your defense. So Paul, gesturing with his hand, a lot of people talk with their hands, he was one of those, started his defense. Backdrop, side note, 
Don't defend yourself. You get locked up and you got to go stand in front of somebody important fighting for your life and your freedom, get a good lawyer. That's just free advice. Paul was smarter than everybody else, so he represented himself. And in verse 2, he said, I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. For I know you're an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now please listen to me patiently. Paul was so brilliant. <laughs> he, he, was, he was so smart. He's talking to the king. He's arrested. The king's op- acting as the judge here as to whether or not he's going to have him executed or let him go. He's smart enough to butter him up. He's smart enough to say, man, I'm glad I, you're the judge today, king. I'm glad that I'm talking to you today and not to somebody else because I know that you're smart. I know you're an expert. Even See, king wasn't a Jew, but Paul said, I know you're an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now, please listen to me patiently. Verse 4, he said, as the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. He went to all the right schools. He was an educated man. Verse 5, if they would admit it, they know I've been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. Class warfare has always happened in the church, out of the church, in society, in the city, in the country. Paul was a member of the elite church crowd in his day. In verse 6, he said, now I'm on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day and share the same hope I have. Yet, Your Majesty, they accuse me of having this hope. Paul's saying, look, all Jews believe this, but y'all are arresting me for it. You realize you don't always have to be doing something wrong to get arrested? You realize you could be doing something everybody else was doing, but they grabbed you and didn't grab the guy next to you? This is what Paul's testimony is. Y'all, y'all are grabbing me. All these other people believe the same thing I do, but you're arresting me. Class warfare. Getting singled out. It's not new. It's been going on for a long time. In verse 8, he said, why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? This is one of the charges they brought against him. Paul believes that God can raise the dead. He's saying all Jews believe that. They've been believing that since since Moses. That's their story. How how is that incredible news to you? Verse 9, I used to believe that I ought to do everything to oppose the very name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Now check this out. Paul was so religious. He was so deep into his Jewish religion, and he was the top part of that crowd that he felt it was his job to go around and punish everybody that wasn't just like him. There's still people like that in church today. If if you're not just like them, they're right and you're wrong. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. But Paul was so convinced that he was right and anybody who was different from him was wrong, he negotiated with the government of his day. He said, look, if you give me the authority, I'll go kill all these people that are preaching bad religion. If you give me the authority, I will go and I'll arrest all these people. This, he thought Jesus was a cult leader. He thought Jesus was not telling the truth. He did not believe in what Jesus was preaching. He said, I, I, I thought I should do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus. Let me tell you something today. Don't spend your life in opposition to stuff. Spend your life empowering something. Don't spend your life as an opposer. Spend your life as a supporting, motivating encourager. Don't spend your life rallying against something. 
spend your life helping make something. You can be the negative person that's just talking bad about stuff, or you can be the positive person that's out doing something positive to make change. And that's still going on today. There's some people who feel they're going to make change by whining and complaining all the time. And there's other people who feel they're going to make change by doing something good to see that change happen. Paul was on the wrong side of this coin. He said, I thought it was my job to go out and snuff out the very name of Jesus. Verse 10, he said, indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them. When they were condemned to death. Paul had the authority from the government to go around and arrest anybody that he felt like had bad religion. Anybody he felt theology was wrong, he had legal power. He was the law. He, was, he, he had the badge and the gun, and he went around incarcerating people. And when it came time for them to either be put in prison or let go, he was the one that got to stand up and put his vote against them, even to have them executed and Killed for their faith. Verse 11 says, Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. Imagine that. What if they come grab you, drag you out of here, and say, Look, I'm going to lock you up for 35 years, and we're going to put you in hard time for 35 years. Listen, prison today, it's no joy. I've been there. It's not that. I mean, if you get past the people you're with, it's not that bad. They feed you and give you a bed to sleep in. If you get around the right people, you get in a 16-man cell with everybody pretty straight. It's not that. Listen, prison back then, whole different story. It was hard time for everybody. If they came and said, I'm going to lock you up and I'm going to give you a hard time, or you just read this piece of paper, say a few bad things about Jesus, and we're going to let you go. You know, the average person would just go ahead and cuss God and say, now send me home and let me free. We had a pastor in our community right here on the west side of Jacksonville many years ago was lied on by a family member to try to set him up because they didn't like him because he had preached stuff that made them feel bad and they had one of their children say that this man molested her. So they lock him up. It don't take anything but an accusation in today's world. They locked this pastor up right here off the west side of Jacksonville and they tell him, it looks bad. Bad bad ink right now on, on Christians, bad ink on preachers, bad ink on molesters. And they offered him a deal. If you've ever been arrested, you know there's, there's a deal coming. They don't want to spend the money to try anybody. They'd rather you plead down to something that you didn't do than, than try you for what you may or may not have done just so they can get a win in their column. That's the justice system. They, they want to get you to plead down to something that you didn't do just so they can say we got another conviction on our state attorney record. And so they told him if you will plead down and say that you did it, not all of it, but some of it, we will let you go home and we'll give you community service and order some training on your part and put you on some probation, uh, but you'll get to go home. If you don't accept this plea, you're going to go to court and you're going to face at least 20 years. What would you do? Think about it, wives. If your husband was innocent, all he had to do was sign a piece of paper that said, yeah, I did some stuff I shouldn't have done, and they send him home to you today, and he can keep working his job and keep paying the bills. That's, that's a choice to make right there. Well, this man would not sign a piece of paper saying he did so. He wouldn't plead down. 
went to court and lost. Did 20 years in prison. The girl, after he got out, came to him, said in front of the whole church, my dad made me lie. This man never did anything to me. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't take a plea and plea down. Paul was the kind of guy that was putting these people in jail and saying, look, if you just say some bad things about Jesus, we're going to let you go home today. I wonder in your own mind, how far are you willing to go to back your, 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 your statement that you love Jesus more than you love anything? Do you love Jesus more than your freedom? Do you love Jesus more than your money? Let's keep moving so we can get out of here. He said, I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Paul was no friend to the church. That's why so many people had problems with him when he became a pastor because he had put some of their parents to death who were Christians. He had incarcerated many people. It'd be like if some cop, uh, you know, arrested you falsely, killed somebody that you love falsely, and then we made him the pastor of this church. Okay, we got several cops out there right now whose names we can call. I, I mean, I wonder, do you think the attendance would be different uh, next week if we let one of those cops come and be the pastor here? People wouldn't be comfortable sitting. Ain't you the guy that murdered those innocent people for nothing? Ain't you, you the guy that? This is who Paul was, and this is what he went through. This was his life. Before Christ, in verse 12, he said, One day I was on such a mission to Damascus. It was a city he was traveling to, armed with the authority and the commission of the leading priest, badge and gun in hand, chasing Christians. Verse 13, About noon, your majesty, talking to King Agrippa, I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. See, Paul's about to give his testimony now. He's about to tell how he met Jesus. Everybody ought to have a testimony of how they met Jesus. The only people that don't have a testimony of how they met Jesus are people who don't know how they met Jesus. And listen, if you met him, you know how you met him. You might not remember what day of the week it was, but you remember something about it. And Paul is about to tell his testimony in verse 14. He said, we all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's useless for you to fight against my will. Now, here's what's cool. He said, we all fell down. And I heard a voice. Now, that infers that everyone didn't hear the voice. Everyone fell down, but everyone didn't hear the voice. See, everyone in this room other than me right now is sitting down, but everybody's not hearing what God has to say. You, Paul heard a voice say, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. If you don't get anything else out of today's message, I want you to get this. You can't fight against God. Well, let me back it up. You can't effectively fight against God. You can't beat God. I have people, I've had people tell me, Pastor, pray for my son. He's running from the Lord. And I'm like, running from the Lord? That's like me running from Usain Bolt. That's not effective. You can't outrun the Lord. Where are you going to run to? He's already wherever you're going. But Jesus tells Paul, it's, it's useless for you to fight against my will. And in verse 15, Paul said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. You know that some people in this room, some people in our city, some people in our country, they're fighting against the very thing that they need the most because they think that they're right and the other dude's wrong. 
it's easy to get your mind locked in and go chasing something so hard that you miss what you really need to be pursuing. And this is what had happened to Paul. And so he asked, who are you? And the Lord replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get on your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. You're to tell the world what you've seen, and I will show you in the future. Verse 17, he gives him some bad news. He said, I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. That sounds pretty good. Here's the bad news. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Now, see, we know that racial tension is real in America, and we know that it's really bad right now. And we know that there is a drastic difference between white people and black people and the way that they treat each other and view each other in many cases. That is not news. That, that's not something that's new to our generation. The Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. Didn't even walk on the same side of the street together. If they bumped into each other, if, if a Jew bumped into a Gentile or touched something that they'd seen a Gentile touch, they had to go through a whole big ceremonial cleansing process because they were so convinced of how bad these people were. And, and listen, don't be a hater. Don't, be a, don't hate stuff. God might save you and call you to minister to the very thing you hate. See, I've never heard anybody admit it that they were racist uh, when saying, I was scared when I first got saved because I thought God was going to call me to be a missionary and send me to Africa. And I was too racist to go. I never heard them say that. But I've never heard anybody say, I, I was scared to get saved because I thought God might call me to be a missionary and send me to Hawaii. I never heard anybody say that they were scared of going to some tropical place. But you got to be careful what you hate because God might put that thing as the thing that you end up having to deal with as a ministry. Verse 18, he said, you're going to open their eyes so they can turn from darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. If verse 18 has not happened to you, I don't care how many hours you've walked, how many prayers you've prayed, how many times you've been baptized, how much scripture you know, how many churches you've ministered in. If verse 18 has not happened to you, you don't have biblical salvation. Because this is a description of what really happens. You turn from the wrong to the right, and you turn from the power of Satan to God. If you don't realize that there was a time in your life where you were wrong, and that you were being controlled by the power of the devil, and you repent from that and turn to God, you don't have biblical salvation. What happens at that point? They receive forgiveness for their sins, and they're given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. It's not about coming to church. It's not about doing good things. It's about having faith in Jesus Christ. He went on to say in verse 19, So King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all Judea. And also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God. Look at that phrase. Where are we at? Give me, where are we at? Here we go. Look in the middle. Right after the word Gentiles, it says that who must repent? Who? All must repent of their sins and turn to God. If I asked you, when was the realest time where you truly repented of your sins and turned to God? You need to have a good answer for that because that's something that everybody has to do to prove that they have changed by the good things that they do. Verse 21 says, Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up to this present time so I can testify to everyone 
from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Now, a lot of people think, based on this verse and some other misconstrued verses in the Bible, that as long as you're serving the Lord, God's not going to let anything bad happen to you. As long as you're Holy Ghost fire baptized doing what God has called you to do, that you're going to be able to say, but God has protected me and, and kept me so that I can testify from the least to the greatest. And listen, that is not accurate. And it doesn't take any more than a cursory examination of the apostles' lives to find out that the majority of them, all of them except John and Judas, were killed in horribly tragic deaths for their faith. Before I started this church, I found an organization called Mission Jacksonville where I walked the streets of downtown Jacksonville and ministered to homeless people every day, praying with crack addicts every day, trying to help transition people off the street into mainstream living. And my mom used to be scared because I go by myself every day. I drive downtown. I'll park my car at 1st and Main, leave all my jewelry and my keys inside my car. Thank God for, you know, buttons on the outside that would open it for me because I figured, you know, if I get jumped, uh, they just going to take some skin on my life, but they ain't, ain't going to get my truck. Hallelujah. So, and I would walk up and down the streets, and, I, and my mom used to say stuff like, Scott, I'm concerned. You know, you're going, you're going in a bad place. You should take someone with you. You shouldn't be down there by yourself. And then she'd say, but I know you're doing the Lord's work, so God's going to watch out for you. And I could have let that go. She's old, you know. You know, mine just trying to make, make herself feel good that, you know, she, she's not going to lose her son. And... I could, but, you know, that ain't in me. So I tell her, well, you never know, Mom. Just because I'm doing God's work don't mean that they're not going to grab me, tie me up, beat me to death, you know, keep me for a while, and then throw me off the top of a building. Why would you say that? Because <laughs> you raised me to be this way. And there's no guarantee just because you're doing God's work that everything's going to turn out right for you. Jesus did God's work. They murdered him. Paul did God's work. They murdered him. Timothy did, I mean, Stephen did God's work, they murdered him. All the apostles did God's work, they murdered him. But Paul said, God's protecting me up to this present time. He didn't know what was going to happen. He wasn't living under the delusion that just because I'm serving God, nothing bad is going to happen to me. He knew the stories. Verse 23 said that Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. And in this way announce God's light to the Jews and Gentiles alike. Suddenly Festus shouted out. Now here's the governor that Paul's already talked to in chapter 22. And he's tired. Paul's not talking to him. He's talking to the king. But the king is sitting next to this dude Festus who doesn't like Paul. And Festus heard all he can hear. And he said, Paul, you are insane. Too much studying made you crazy. Listen, if nobody's accusing you of being crazy lately, you probably ain't off your edge enough. Let me, let me say it to you in an easier way to digest. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence for you to present at your trial that you could be convicted of being a Christian? Festus is like, I'm tired of hearing your stuff, dude. Uh, you, you're just nuts. You're, you're, you're off your edge. And in verse 25, Paul replied, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is the sober truth. Kind of wonder if Festus might have had a little bottle in his hand at the time. Verse 26, King Agrippa, he said, and King Agrippa knows about these things. Paul, see, if you ever get to the place where you start trying to convince someone of something, and you see that look in their eyes where you're connecting, and you know they're hearing you, even though this dude over here ain't hearing you, 
You know he's feeling you. But he, see, Paul knew that Agrippa was, was feeling him at the moment. Festus was just off on his own thing. And Paul said, look, King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I'm sure these events are all familiar to him. For they were not done in a corner. Verse 27, he said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Didn't even give him a chance to answer. He said, I know you do. This is a Roman, a Jew-hating Roman. Paul's on trial for his life. The governor is trying to get him killed. Paul's making his own car argument to the king, and he looks at him and said, you believe in my people? I know you do. I said, that's, that's, that's a bold statement to make to the man with the axe in his hand. In verse 28, Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Agrippa's like, you think you're going to throw a few words at me and I'm going to renounce my faith and come, come your way? And Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. He said, whether it takes me a minute or the rest of my life, I hope that you'll come, become just like me. Not my race, not my nationality, that can't happen. But I hope that you'll become just like me on the inside. I hope that you'll believe just what I believe, be just like me except for these chains. I'm not, I don't want you to be locked up in prison, but I want you to believe what I believe. And it's my prayer this morning that everybody who hears what I'm saying will become just like me. Not in my faults and my frailties and my weaknesses, not in my foolishness and, and, and my issues. I got chains in my own life. You've got them too. Don't act like you don't. I, I, but I wish you would become just like me, not in the areas that I'm bound in, but in the areas that I'm believing rightly in. Because I know for sure I love the Lord. I know that, I, I know that he saved me. I know that he changed me. I know that I'm born again. See, that's the difference between me and many pastors in the world. Everybody preaching behind pulpit is not truly saved. That's why in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Many will say to me, I prophesied in your name. I cast out devils. I did miracles. Every preacher, every miracle worker, every devil chaser is not truly born again. Listen, abundant life doesn't have the greatest pastor in the world. Uh, I'm pretty cute, but that's, you know, that's debatable for, for blind people. But I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm certainly not the tallest guy in the world. I'm not the strongest guy in the world. But one thing I can tell you for sure I have been born again by the life-changing power of God's Holy Spirit, and you can be sure about that. See, two days ago, I celebrated my spiritual birthday. And I, like Paul, I've never gotten over what he did for me. Every year in July, I preach the same message in the middle of July. Whatever Sunday morning falls closest to July 15th, because I've never got over what happened to me on July 15, 1981. It impacted me. It changed me. It was a Damascus Road experience. It knocked me down and caused me to look at life differently. And it made a change in me that I haven't gotten over. And I celebrated my 35th spiritual birthday. Many people don't understand what a spiritual birthday is. But Jesus said throughout his ministry, you must be born again. People got confused when Ronald Reagan was the president, he talked a lot about being born again, and people associated being born again with a certain type of denomination. And now you can even hear people say in the carryover from those years, you're not one of those born-again Christians, are you? 
That's the only kind of Christian there is. And see, the problem with some people in church, even some people serving in church, they never really been born again. Keep listening. I'm going to finish in a second. Jesus said you must be born again. Jesus said unless you're born again, you can't go to heaven. He was talking in St. John's Gospel, chapter 3, to a man named Nicodemus who came to ask him about how to get to heaven. Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you know, he heard what he said. He's like, be born again? You mean I got to crawl back into my mom's womb and, 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 and become born all, again? all of, And Jesus is like, boy, you're missing it. You can't do that. You're thinking natural. I'm talking spiritual. You've already had your natural birth. You need to have a spiritual new birth, a time where you become a new person and i wonder my birth my birthday my natural birthday august 6 1963 when i was born onto this planet my spiritual birthday is july 15 1981 everyone in this room hopefully knows their natural birthday but if i walked from row to row and i started with deacon scott and i went all the way back to james and i said tell me your natural birthday and tell me your spiritual birthday. Most of you would be able to get your natural birthday out of the way. But you wouldn't be able to get your spiritual birthday and tell me when it was. And I want you to think about that this morning. Because 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You ought to always be ready to tell somebody about the hope that's on the inside of you. You ought to always understand that if God has saved you, he's given you a testimony and that people need to hear it. So I'm going to take the next few minutes and I'm going to talk fast. I want you to listen fast and I'm going to tell you my testimony. I'm going to shorten it up and I'm going to make it quick. I grew up in church. I was in church from days after birth. I was born into the Catholic church. I was christened into the Catholic church and I was carried to church every week to have mass in the Catholic church. My parents got divorced. And back in the 60s, people got divorced. They kicked everybody out. The, the, the guilty one, the, the innocent one, if there was one, the kids. And we got kicked out of Catholic church, ended up riding a bus uh, to church as, af, after we um, got kicked out of the Catholic church. I was born in San Diego, California, Mercy Hospital. My dad was in the Navy. He got out of the Navy right after I was born, and we moved to a little town outside West Monroe, Louisiana which no one had ever heard of until a bunch of bearded, long-haired white dudes on the dynasty started getting on TV all the time. And I spent a few years there before we moved to England. And I spent my early elementary years in England. That's where I developed my accent. We came back from England for years. Dina talked just like a little British girl. And she finally shed most of that. We came back from, we left England because my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. And my dad stayed there. My mom and Dina and I came back, lived with some family in Virginia. And while we were there, we rode the church bus to a little church called Grace Brethren Church. Our first year back in the States was my third grade year. And we were going to this church. The bus was taking us. My mom, you know, had been kicked out of the Catholic church, uh, wasn't doing the church thing. My sister and I were riding uh, the church bus to this little church because they said, you know, come to church where you eat candy. Uh, come to church we have parties so we were going and one day the preacher said if you don't want to die and go to hell forever you need to walk down this aisle and pray with me well you know I ain't crazy I just look this way 
And I thought, well, I don't want to die and go to hell forever. I might visit, but I don't want to die and go to hell forever. And so I walked the aisle. I shook the preacher's hand. I prayed with him. I was baptized, and they gave me this little red Bible. I don't know why they gave me this Bible, just because I got baptized. But they gave me this little red Bible, and they told me to be a good person, and I would go to heaven. Listen, walking aisles, praying prayers, and being a good person is not the way to get to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that, but that's what happened to me in the third grade. And then a couple years later, we moved here to Jacksonville in 1975. I was 11 years old, and we did what we did. Man came by, Jack Rickenback came by, said, I drive the bus to the church. I'll pick you up at your house tomorrow morning. You want to go? We got candy on the bus. I'm in. Always been big on candy. And so they had me locked in. So Dean and I started riding the bus in 1975 to a little Baptist church on Normandy Boulevard called West Normandy Baptist Church. I was 11. Gail was four and a half, just turning five. And that's when I first met Gail. And we're a small little country Baptist church. on. It's still there on Normandy Boulevard next to Greenacre Sporting Goods. That's where I met Gail's mom and dad. Gail's mom and dad taught me Sunday school when I first came to Florida. And it's crazy because I haven't thrown away much in my life, and I still have my vacation Bible school certificate signed by Gail's mom in 1975. Now, you can say, well, that's pretty cool because you didn't know you'd grow up to marry her and have children with her. Well, we, we all had a bet going on back then because it was a small church. There was only a handful of us young boys, and there was only one cute girl in the whole church, and she was way younger than all of us. But all of us young boys, well, all, all of us said, I could call, call out the names of them right now. We all said, and I still joke with these dudes, when little girl grows up, I'm going to marry her. And I was the only one that did it. But that was how... I ended up getting heavily involved in the church here on the west side. My sister and I got really involved in the youth group, went to youth camp that year. And the preaching dude, the pastor at youth camp said, I want to challenge every Christian in the room. I want you to carry your Bible to school every day this school year. Well, I didn't really, I wasn't deep in God. and I wasn't much about, you know, reading the Bible, but I'm big on a challenge. Don't dare me. Any, any don't dare me folk in the room? Don't dare me. Y'all. <laughs> so every day I carried this Bible. Now we moved after the first nine weeks. I spent the first nine weeks of my seventh grade year at Eugene Butler, seventh grade center. Y'all know nothing about Eugene Butler. You know about Eugene Butler? Listen, they ain't nowhere to be. And then we moved half mile up the road. And this is when busing was going on. They bust me all the way from the west side of Jacksonville off Normandy Boulevard in Country Creek to James Weldon Johnson, seventh grade. And y'all definitely don't know nothing about James Weldon Johnson. All right. Hope it got better. Hallelujah. You didn't carry a little red Bible, though. Wrap this up. Every day I carried this Bible to school, not to put in my locker, not to hide under my papers, on top. Why? Because he dared me. 
It wasn't because I love God, and that's why I know. Everybody talking about Jesus don't love the Lord. Everybody coming to church don't love the Lord. Everybody didn't quote Scripture don't love the Lord. I could quote Scripture in the seventh grade. I was carrying a Bible to school every day. I was confronting people about Jesus when they were messing with me about my Bible and let them know, I'm doing this on a dare because I ain't a punk. What about you? This Bible got a little weight to it. Let me throw it at you. So every day I carried this Bible to school. And every day in seventh grade, people would harass me about the Bible. And I'd tell them, because I'm a church man, what I do. My pastor said carry a Bible to school, so that's what I do, because I ain't ashamed of God. And I carried a Bible to school every day, seventh grade. Eighth grade comes around, Stillwell Junior High School, right around the corner. Every day, eighth grade, I'm talking to people about God. Eighth grade was the time for me when things really got turned up. Dina was one year ahead of me, and Dina was always, you know, for un, until we, we got you know, older teenagers and early 20s, Dina was so much more of uh, the boss because she was the older sister, and she could drive first, and she had money first, and she did lots of things first, but she was always one grade ahead of me, and most of our life we went to the same school, but those transitionary years, she'd be ahead of me at a different school, but we were both at Stillwell, and eighth grade was a year a lot of pressure got put on me, and people were like, uh, you know, you ought to come uh, and smoke cigarettes with us in the woods after school. You want to come drink beer with us a after school? You want to come over to our house and smoke dope? And I told them all in eighth grade, I'm a church man, I'll do that, because Christians don't do that, and I ain't about that lifestyle. Well, ninth grade comes around. I'm still at Stillwell. Dina's going on to Ed White. So she's around a whole different crowd of people. See, back, back then, and Ed White, they only had 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. So I'm ninth grade at Stillwell. She's 10th grade at Ed White. She's hanging out with, with, with an older crowd. And one day, her and I are playing in the neighborhood, Country Creek off Normandy Boulevard, behind Famous Amos. Used to be a sign there, home starting at $24,999. You can't build a new home for that now in Jacksonville. But that's where we were living, and new houses were being built. And we used to ride our bikes through new houses and hang out. And we were sitting inside a house that was being built. Don't do that, children. It's dangerous. And you get nails in your tires. And I remember my sister pulled out of, of wherever she had it, a gold bag, a purple bag with a gold string in it. Some of y'all seen them Crown Royal bags that real dope addicts hide their dope in. And she pulled out this Crown Royal bag, and she pulled out a joint. See, y'all, young people don't smoke joints now. They, they got too much technology, gas masks and all of it. She pulled out this joint, and she said, you want to smoke some pot with me? What? The church people. Well, do that. Ain't what we do. You're president of the youth group. Carry my Bible school every day in the seventh grade. That's not what we do. And she said, it's not that bad. Her best friend's name was Bug. Parents. If you take notice of who your best friend, your children's best friend's name are. If it's Bug, if it's Ice Pick, you know, if, if it's two guns, that. She said, Bug does it, and it's not that bad. I'm like, well, if Bug does it, and it's not that bad, fire it up. And my sister gave me my first joint ever when I was in the ninth grade. By the time I got to 10th grade, she had moved on to the 11th grade. She knew every drug dealer in our school. 
So y'all see my sister now as the church administrator and this really, you know, little church motherly type woman. My sister was National Honor Society. She was a cheerleader. She did dance. She did tap. She was a, a classical ballet. Uh, she was always to the fore. She was the party chick. She knew all the drug dealers in our school. And by the time I got to Ed White High School, our entire high school life was a blur. And all we did was stay high all the time. And I got into crime, ended up going to jail three times while I was in high school for various breaking and entering, various different destruction of property, different types of things, and ended up selling drugs throughout high school because I figured it was easier than getting a job. When I was in school, nobody was talking to me about God. Nobody was asking me. And in, in, in the late 70s, early 80s, people, people weren't talking about that kind of stuff. And we were just living our life. But I did have one boy in my high school come to me one time and ask me if I, if I was a Christian. And I was one of the most scandalous people in my whole school. Our dean of boys had a list of 10 people that he called in. Every time something bad happened in the school, he called in me and nine other guys. One of the other guys was my best friend, and this dude's mother was the principal secretary, and it, she had keys to the whole school, and we copied those, and we used to break into school and steal stuff every week and change grades and teachers' books in the teaching line just to mess with them. But it was a scandalous time. One dude comes to me and asks me, well, I'm the most scandalous dude, and he said, would you like to be a Christian? I'm like, dude, I'm already a Christian. What are you talking about? I walked and I prayed a prayer when I was in the third grade. I got baptized. I got a red Bible I used to carry to church. And I had the whole thing laid out in my mind because of some event that happened to me on the outside but never changed who I was on the inside that I didn't need to listen to people about Christianity. And so I swore up and down that I didn't need Christ. And it wasn't until later in life that I came home one night on July 15, 1981. I'm going to cut to the end because y'all moving too much on me, playing too much on me. I came home after a keg party. Y'all know about, y'all do it different these days. I came home from a keg party on the north side of Jacksonville, 3.30 in the morning. I had my windows rolled down. Some of y'all know something about this. Windows rolled down, head hanging out the window, trying to stay awake and get home. Anybody know anything about that? You don't have to admit it. Shirt off, middle of July, 1981, hot outside. I come home. I'd created so much trouble in my home, and my mom was so tired of getting me out of jail. Last time I got arrested, she wouldn't even come get me out of jail. Y'all missed all that part. Get last year's tape. My mom put me out of the house and put a bedroom set in the two-car garage, and my bedroom was in the garage because she didn't want me in the main house coming and going 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning doing drugs and, and selling drugs out of her home. And so normally I just come home, go into my bedroom, and crash out. Well, I had been partying, and I wanted to get something to eat. So I was going to walk through my bedroom. I had my own door to the garage, and then the, inside my bedroom was a door that led into the house. I took my shirt in my hand as I walked in my room. I was going to go right to the kitchen, and I threw my shirt on my nightstand, and I looked back at it, and it landed just like that. On my nightstand sat that red Bible. That red Bible had sat on my nightstand as a piece of furniture untouched for years. It had been untouched in the 8th grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade. Untouched, but always there. Unnoticed, but all, when I threw my shirt on that nightstand and part of it landed on top of that Bible, I looked at it and felt like my feet were frozen. And I thought, wow, I haven't noticed that Bible in years. 
I hadn't thought about God in years. And as my mind became quick to sober up, I didn't go to the kitchen. I walked over and sat down on the edge of my bed, and I picked up this little red Bible. I've always been studious. I always took notes, and I had notes inside this Bible, and I started thumbing through the pages. And I didn't have anybody there to explain to me what these words meant. But God's Spirit is able to do for someone more than any preacher could ever do for them. And by myself at 3.30 in the morning on July 15, 1981, as I read this book, I realized that what I had was not real salvation. That I did not have a real relationship with God even though I'd been in church for years. I'd carried my Bible to school and served on the youth group committee. And I got down on my knees and I prayed a very unusual prayer. I didn't pray the typical sinner's prayer because I didn't have anybody to lead me in it. I prayed, God, please save me for real. Not like Jimmy, but like the people that you saved in this book. See, Jimmy was my drug-doing friend who was the pastor's son at West Normandy Baptist Church. And we used to get high together. Last time I saw him, he was shooting up heroin, leaning against a green electrical box four doors down from his house, passed off, tied off with a needle hanging in his arm. Pastor's son. We had done a lot of things together, and he claimed to be a Christian. I wanted to be a real Christian. Not like him, I wanted to be a real Christian. And right then, at that moment, God began to flood, flood emotions over me that I'd never felt. God began to move in me, and God began to draw me to himself. And I just began to pray, and I began to weep. And I started singing songs that I remembered from the bus, and I stayed up that whole night long. And I read the Bible. And I sang and I prayed. Just sit there for a minute. And later that morning, as I still hadn't been to bed, my dealer friend called me. Guy I still talk to every day of my life. Guy I grew up with. I still speak to him every day of my life. He called me and he's like, dude, you're not going to believe what happened to me. I'm like, you're not going to believe what happened to me. And he said, you remember Ted Boone from the park? We play football at Normandy? I said, yeah. He said, well, I lost a, a bet to him, and I got to go to church with him Sunday. And I ain't going in there with all them people without you. You got to ride with me. I'm like, man, that's awesome. Let me tell you what. I ain't got time. We'll catch up later. And so that Sunday morning, I went to Hillcrest Baptist Church. I walked the aisle, and I told the preacher, I asked God to save me Wednesday night. And I, and I want to be uh, obedient to God. And he said, well, you need to come back tonight. Came back Sunday night, met some people in the church. They said, we got a Bible study tomorrow night. It's Monday night. You want to come back? I'm like, my whole world, Jesus now. I was fully committed from the moment I got saved. I was going to follow God and be a different person. I went back to youth Bible study on Monday night. They pulled out a coffin. They put a mirror in it. I remember it like it was yesterday. They made us walk by one at a time, and they said, look in that coffin and tell me what you see, and a you know, big illustrative sermon. But I met people there that Monday night, young people, who I still have friends with today, and they said, well, we're going to watch a men's softball game tomorrow night, Tuesday, and you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, I don't have a job. I was a career criminal. I, I, I still had charges on me in St. Augustine still to this day. I hope that they've you know, done away with that. It never made it. I, I called them. 
a year later, after a year being saved, I was in the ministry a year after being saved. I was serving as a full-time youth pastor at Riverview Baptist Church on the north side on Lim Turner and Sutel. I, I, I called the state attorney's office in St. John's County and said, um, you know, we, I never did go to trial over that burglary uh, in 1981. And he's like, well, I don't see a record of it. How old were you? I said, I'm 17, but they t- the rest of me told me they were going to try me as an adult. And they said, oh, we got too much backlog. If you don't hear from us, leave it alone. I'm 53 next month. I ain't heard from them. I'm leaving alone. <laughs> Go watch softball game on Tuesday night, Wednesday night, midweek Bible study. Thursday night, door-to-door, soul-winning visitation. Hi, my name's Scott. We're just out tonight telling people about Jesus Christ. Wonder if you have a few minutes we can talk to you about your personal need for a relationship with God. Go out and lead people to Christ. Friday night and Saturday night they had a ministry for young people called the Peacemaker. Bible study, concert, snacks, uh, date, place to meet women. Uh, I'm down. Let's do that. Friday, Saturday night. Sunday morning back to church. Sunday night back to church. Monday night youth Bible study. Tuesday night, let's go watch the men play softball. Wednesday night, midweek Bible study. Thursday night, soul winning visitation. Friday, Saturday night, back to the peacemaker. Sunday morning, back to church. Sunday night, back to church. Monday night, back to church. Tuesday night, screech on the brakes. No men's softball game. I had been in church every day of my new salvation for three weeks running around this same group of sold-out, fired-up young people for God. They had given me a Bible. They had given me Christian music to listen to. They all knew who I was, but they accepted me anyway. Some of these kids were people that I had bad relationships with from school days, but they accepted me anyway. Tuesday night comes out. There's about 15 of us that were just locked in. We're like, well, no game. We went to the Normandy Mall, which was still a mall back then, and... We sat on our cars, and we sang songs together and talked about God together. Wednesday night, right back to it. What am I saying? When I got saved, I went from having three gallons of whole grain alcohol in the trunk of my car, a whole briefcase full of drugs that I dumped out off Lambing Road off 103rd Street in a creek, threw it away, and got involved in an entire new way of life. And I want to tell you, 35 years later, I still haven't gotten over and I still haven't forgotten what God did for me on uh, 6956 Malden Lane right off Townsend and Blanding Boulevard 35 years ago on July 15, 1981. Why? Because it was real to me. It changed my life. It made me a new person. Here's the reality. Some of you don't have a real testimony about how you met Christ. You just, I'm still trying. You're just in church. You're just trying to find your way. You've been serving God so long. Somebody in your family's been serving God so long that you just assume that everybody already thinks you're a Christian, so you're too scared to come and to give your life to Christ. And that is going to end you up in hell forever. So my question to you today, and I know I've been long, but listen to me now. My question to you today is not when you were born, not what your natural birthday is, but when were you really born again? Because when you get to heaven, God's not going to care who your spouse was. God's not going to care who was in your family that served God. God's not going to care what your parents did. The Bible says we all must stand before the Lord ourselves. And I'm not asking you today if you want to go to church or if you want to carry a Bible to school every day. Because I did those things for years. 
And I didn't have a real relationship with God. See, I know the difference that there is in coming to church and struggling and coming to church as a Christian. And I have the heartbreak every week that I have to look out into this crowd. And I see people that come here all the time and I can see it in your eyes. You want to be what God wants you to be. But it's not connecting. It's not clicking for you. Why? Because you can't put a square peg in a round hole. And you need to change your shape. You need to change from the inside out. See, church makes changes on the outside. Church tells you to clean this up and get better at that. God makes changes on the inside. God wants to change you on the inside, and the change will naturally come on the outside. Some of you have been in church too long without a true relationship to Christ. And you need to give your heart to Jesus today. You need to get saved for real today. The Bible says that whosoever believes in him should not be ashamed. Some of you think, well, what will people think of me? I've walked so many aisles in my life. I've prayed to be saved so many different times. I've been baptized. I've done it in this church. I've done it in other places. What about me? Let me tell you what about you. The Bible says that you'll find him when you search for him with your whole heart. I prayed to be saved several times. Got baptized several times. Didn't take for me. Why didn't it take for me? Because I wasn't, it wasn't my time. I wasn't searching for him with my whole heart for whatever reason. But let me tell you this. If you ever get saved for real, it'll last forever. Pride's going to put some of y'all in hell forever. Because you're so determined to keep up your airs and your appearances that you've you're, you're, you're got something that you don't really have. I wish I could make everybody in the room disappear but just you. So you could just tell God without fear of other people and wondering what they would think. But I can't do that, and God wouldn't have me to do that because Jesus didn't call people privately. He called them publicly. And he said, whosoever believes in me should not be ashamed. There are people in this room right now that if you died right now, you don't know for sure that you'd go to heaven. Some of you know for sure that you wouldn't. Some of you serving in this church. Some of you are the best people in this church. Not truly born again. And I'm going to give you an opportunity today to change that. Because it's not about how much you can carry a Bible. It's not about how many church services you can make. Do you really have a testimony where you can say, I know on this date, God invaded my life and changed me. And I've never been the same. You need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, I've done it so many times, I don't even think I can muster up the strength to do it again. I don't know what you think, and I don't know what anybody else would think. The Bible says... That when one sinner comes to repent to the Lord, that there is rejoicing in heaven. God will be happy for you today to get real salvation. Don't worry about what other people think. Don't worry about how many times you've tried to get saved in the past. If you are not 100% sure that you are truly born again according to the Bible, I want today, July 17, 2016, for you to be able to say, I got saved on July 17, 2016, and God changed my life. Some of you are trying to be good people. It's not going to happen until you let Jesus get on the inside of you. Some of you are trying to do better. You need God on the inside of you. I want to encourage you today to ask God to come into your life. He said, if you'll call on him in sincerity, he will save you. If you're physically able, I want you to stand on your feet with me. Bow your heads and let's pray together. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. I thank you for saving me 35 years ago, God, and keeping me. 
Even when I tried to walk away, God, you held on to me. And I thank you for that. I thank you for never letting go. And God, I pray today you'd grab hold of somebody that you would never let go of. I pray today, God, that you would give true salvation to somebody today. Lord, I pray today that somebody would recognize their need for true salvation and that they would come today and be born again of the Spirit. Not church, but supernatural new birth as you talked about through your Son and through your Word. Thank you, God, for being real. I pray you do your work your way now. With every head bowed and every eye still closed, I don't want anybody looking around for just a moment. If you're here and you say, Pastor Scott, I'm not saved or I'm not sure if I'm even saved. I don't know, but I don't want to die, and I don't want to go to hell. If, I, I, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. But if you'd say, Pastor Scott, pray for me. I, I, I know I need to get my life right with God before I step out of this life and into the next. With no one looking but me, if you'd be honest enough to say, Pastor Scott, I know I'm not where I need to be, but pray for me. I, I, I will pray for you every day this week. If you say, Pastor Scott... Pray for me that I get my life right with God soon. If you're in this room, you'd be willing to at least admit that. With no one looking around but me, would you slip your hand up and say, I know I'm not saved, preacher. Okay, all right, all right. You can put your hands down. With no one looking around, here's what I want to tell everybody that raised their hands and all the ones that should have raised their hands because you know that you're not right with God too. You don't have to spend another night worried about heaven and hell. You don't have to spend another night worried about whether or not God will receive you because the Bible says that God wrote us this book so we can know for sure that we have eternal life. And Jesus said all you have to do is ask him to save you, and he'll do it. Right now, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you're in this room and you want to get saved and you know that you need real, true Bible salvation. I'm not talking about rededicating your life. I'm not talking about just, you know, drawing closer to God. If you're here and you know that you don't have salvation, but you really want to get saved for real forever today, I want you to pray this silently in your heart. God said he can hear the thoughts in your head. If you want to get saved, I want you to pray this. I pray it out loud. You pray it in your heart. Just say something like this. Now, these words aren't magic, but God knows your heart, and if you mean it, he'll save you. As I pray out loud, you say this silently in your heart. Dear God, I believe in you, and I believe Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead so I could be saved. Please forgive me of my sins and save me for real. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We truly appreciate the opportunity to pour into your lives each week. For more information or to donate to Abundant Life's ministry, please check out our website at www.alcfnow.org. Until next time, we pray that you will live abundantly.